Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Friday, June 24th. Again, we are back today with an emergency podcast about today's breaking news that the Supreme Court has effectively killed Roe versus Wade. I'm joined by Julia Yaffe, Eric Gardner, and Tara Palmieri to talk about how much the country is about to change and whether abortion rights supporters can find a way to fight back. We'll hear about all that and more. <laughs> we actually won't hear about more. We'll hear about all that on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Happy Friday afternoon, everybody, or unhappy Friday, uh, depending on your POV. This is an emergency version of the powers that be because we're talking about the Supreme Court's uh, ruling in Dobbs v. Jackson that basically eliminates Roe versus Wade. Uh, you know, probably half the country now, uh, a lot of red states are about to enact some pretty severe abortion restrictions. We knew this was coming after the news leaked in May. Um, here it is. The court voted by a six to three majority to end federal protections for abortion. Alito, uh, Justice Samuel Alito wrote in the majority opinion that, quote, the authority to regulate abortion must be returned to the people and their elected representatives. Uh, because this is a special podcast today, I'm joined by Eric Gardner, Julia Yaffe, and Tara Palmieri to talk about the fallout. Um, Eric, I want to start with you as the uh, resident uh, legal expert here. Um, anyone can go read the ruling online. Uh, you should um, also read uh, Clarence Thomas's ruling, which uh, suggests that the court should reconsider its rulings um, codifying access to contraceptives and same-sex marriage. Not scary at all. Um, but Eric, what, what's the legal fallout from all of this, um, both in Washington and, and perhaps the states moving forward here? Absolutely. I think uh, there's going to be an explosion of, of cases uh, that are brought um based on new laws and based on ambiguities about how uh, existing laws work. Um, first of all, you know, in all the states that, that, that trigger laws now take place where abortion is effectively illegal, um, you're going to have these clinics who, you know, go up to their state Supreme Courts to figure out uh, whether or not abortion is, is legal there. So that's round number one. We're also going to see states like Texas pass these restrictive laws that not only discourage abortions, but also try to punitively um, stop anyone from facilitating an abortion or crossing state lines to get an abortion. So there's going to be all these cases that are directed that way to figure out whether that is, is, is kosher or not. We're going to see all sorts of things in the privacy realm, in the tax realm, um, you know, all sorts of ways in, in which this new dynamic post-Dobbs um, is going to play out. And finally, um, you know, although the justices tried to say that this was only about abortion, that this isn't about contraception or about gay marriage, you know, it's, it's really an open field day to, to what precedent might next be attacked. And I think that, that the justices are really kidding themselves uh, to think that, that, you know, conservative states are not going to try to test the boundaries here. So, uh, you know, we're going to see a, a lot of social uh, uh, legislation passed with the you know, ambition to get to, to, to the Supreme Court and, and really uh, knock back a lot of progress that's been made uh, these last few decades. Yeah, speaking of testing boundaries, like I like Jurassic Park is in theaters now. I remember in the original Jurassic Park, there's a scene where like 
the velociraptors are like testing the fences to see if they're like electric and whether they can break through. And like Republican leaders for 40 years have been, you know, and, and this has accelerated in the last 10 years, but filing um, or passing laws that they knew would get challenged, bumped up to the court. Tate Reeves in Mississippi signed signed the, the legislation that eventually brought us to today. So Julia, to quote Talking Heads, how did we how did we get here? Well, I think, I mean, you just alluded to it in your question. I think it's been a long road in which uh, the Republican Party and specifically uh, a, core, a core group within the Republican Party, which is white evangelicals who uh, were also very, were not just focused on Roe v. Wade, we're also working with organizations like the Federalist Society to make sure that, you know, they, that there would if there was going to be an activist court, as they put it, that it would be an activist court in their image. So, you know, filling the judiciary with their allies. In more recent history, I think I I think back to two very key moments. The first was, uh, you know, George W. Bush winning the presidency without winning the popular vote, and then getting to appoint two Supreme Court justices, two lifetime appointments, and then the same happening with. Donald J. Trump not winning the popular vote, but getting to appoint three Supreme Court justices. So if you look back at the you know beginning of the 21st century in America, you have two presidents who didn't win the popular vote, but appointed the majority, five Supreme Court justices to lifetime appointments and fundamentally recast uh, the ideological balance of the court, even though there was not really a popular mandate to do so. And then the second thing was uh, in the run-up to the 2016 election, the list, right? The list of judges that Donald Trump put out saying that uh, this is, these are the people I'm going to appoint to the court if you elect me. And I remember speaking to kind of more establishment Republicans in Washington at the time who were horrified by Trump, who had liked other primary candidates in 2016 who had been starting to fall by the wayside as Trump was kind of blazing his path to the nomination, um, kind of holding their noses and getting behind him because he had released this list of justices that he would appoint to the Supreme Court and um, saying, you know, we don't like him. We don't like his morals. We don't like the way he speaks. He's kind of, he's problematic in a number of ways, but, you know, for the, they've had this long, long view and long running strategy of recasting the American judiciary. And this would be a kind of capstone to that. And and I heard a lot of people talking about how they were going to hold their noses and vote for Donald Trump because he might get to appoint justices. And if they were these justices from this list, then they were okay with it. Yeah. And uh, he picked Mike Pence as his running mate, which was a, you know, a little more than a wink and a nod to white evangelicals who like it or not, I think make up what quarter, 30% of, of the presidential electorate every four years. Um, I wrote something when the news first leaked back in May to Politico about how this was a you know decades-long political project. Republicans played the, the game, the political game, to make sure they had all their pieces in place in state legislatures that could appoint judges and, and to state Supreme Courts, and that would create a bench for federal courts. Anyway, I, you did a tweet, Julie, earlier today that was like, pretty astute, or maybe you're riffing off someone else's, which isn't just that Republicans played the game very well. It's that they played uh, a game in which the, the system 
benefits minority rule really well, right? And, um, you know, now the fight for Democrats, progressives, like, moves to the states. And so, Tara, like, what do Democrats even do right now? I mean, like, obviously people are aghast at this, and I should say it's not just Democrats and progressives, but, you know, President Biden said right after the ruling came down, voters need to make their voices heard. This fall, Roe is on the ballot. Personal freedoms are on the ballot. The right to privacy, liberty, equality, they're all on the ballot. They might be, but they're not just on the ballot for like Senate and House races. I mean, Democrats need to like protect governorships in Michigan and Pennsylvania where, you know, Republicans could get full statewide control. I mean, how, how do how do Democrats even wrap their heads around what's ahead of them? I don't know. I mean, it seems like a lot. Um, I, I do think it could be motivating, especially when you um, for the midterm elections for Democrats, when you consider what few options Biden really has as like. In the as the executive to do anything about this, like he can't. There's really there's really very little he can do by executive order. I would say to protect abortion rights in the states, um, and so I guess they can make the argument that like go out and vote um, midterm elections, and you can have you know we can pass laws legislation that will protect your abortion rights. But like a lot of it is com- does come down to the states. I don't know that Democrats have been truly like focused enough on that in some ways. Um, And it also like comes down to like their bench as well. It like, it's going to be, it's going to play out in the States. And I don't know if they're fully prepared for a fight like this, um, especially in those States like Texas and uh, Missouri, et cetera, where like, they just don't have, they don't really have like advocates with power on the ground really there. It can be a motivating factor for democratic voters to come out, but it can also be a debilitating thing where they feel like they just, they're, they're angry at the party for not doing enough. Um, I'll take a quick break, then we'll come right back with our panel. All right, welcome back. Uh, actually, in, fu- in full uh, panel mode here, Julie, you had uh, a take on what, what Tara was just saying about the kind of uncertainty that, that Democrats have right now. Yeah, I, I think that, um, I think this decision, even though we knew for, you know, a month that it was coming, I think is so dispiriting to a lot of Democrats and kind of feeds this, feeds the sense that, everything's broken. Like the political system is broken. It's rigged. It's, I mean, it's what I was getting at with my tweet about minority rule, right? Like the system is, was originally set up and was intended as a form of minority rule. And you've seen Republicans over the last, um, like 20 years as they're losing the general population, turning to more and more undemocratic means to hold their power. So, um, installing more judges and like for lifetime appointments in the, you know, federal judiciary, gerrymandering, things like crazy. Um, and so what always, I think what always ends up happening is that something like, like this, maybe not of this scale, something like this happens and democratic activists say, get out and vote, register, whatever. But at that point, it almost feels like too late because, okay, you might go and vote in your 
gerrymandered district that's already like safe and blue and isn't really going to tip the balance in the Congress, isn't really going to do anything. It's almost like, you know, the whole block is on fire and people are like, get your buckets, you know? The sense I'm getting here in DC and just talking to people I personally know is that like, it's it's pointless to vote. It's pointless to do anything. You just have to just tear it the fuck down because um, change from the inside is no longer possible because it, it's totally rigged against us. And I think that it might be actually demotivating for Democrats in the midterms in that way or for some Democrats, but I don't know. It's still a long way out. Yeah, I don't think you're crazy to say that. I mean, abortion has been a single issue motivator for a lot of Republican voters for a very long time. Democrats aren't really like single issue voters on anything. They sort of like have a worldview, um, but, and they certainly vote and care about social issues, including abortion rights. But I think the challenge for Democrats in the midterms is, isn't just that a lot of their voters might be dispirited. So a lot of the voters they typically need to vote in elections are like what we call low information voters who, you know, like this is obviously a world shaking decision, but a lot of people really don't follow the ins and outs of politics and might not confront the fact that this is a reality or a problem until they themselves or someone they know has to have some kind of uh, abortion in their life or some kind of access to health care that they can't get. Um, and that, you know, that's why I'm like, I mean, just remember when the, when the, the news first broke in May and this came down, like that was the night of the Met Gala. And like, I went on like Google search trends and like the Met Gala was like 10 X the amount of people searching for like news about Roe. And like, there's just this like gap between people who pay attention to what's happening in DC and, and, and people who don't. And, to, and a lot of people who don't are the ones Democrats need to turn out. So I think the thing you just said and the thing I'm talking about just makes it actually tougher for Democrats to win. I, I was just going to say that I also think there's been a bit as, as you know, as, it's like an evergreen tweet. I think there's been a, like a abysmal messaging on the part of de- uh, Democrats who say that essentially like abortion is a kind of an un- unfortunate thing that some poor women have to do because, because they can't take care of another child as opposed to abortion is a critical part of gynecological care. You know, there are women who I I have now um, personally known several women who very far into a pregnancy or like 20 weeks into a pregnancy, the fetus dies in utero for whatever reason. And at that point, there has to be an abortion done. Otherwise, there's all kinds of risk of infection, sepsis, death, whatever. It's not a woman who's like, I don't feel like having this baby or I can't afford this baby. It is just a fundamental part of gynecological care. And that has not been really conveyed to people. It's seen as this almost like frivolous decision that you like got drunk, got knocked up, and then and then you regretted it. And um, maybe we should let those women get, you know, have an abortion. Yeah, I, I just want to say a couple of things. Number, number one, um, you know, if for a while it looked like this midterm election was going to be all about the economy. Um, And to the extent that Democrats now have a message that they can pivot away from inflation, uh, this provides them one. Number two, I'd say that, you know, this isn't just going to be a one-off event. You know, we're not just talking about a June uh, decision from the Supreme Court that will be forgotten about by uh, November. Uh, we're going to see states in these com- in coming months pass all types of restrictive 
uh, legislation. And every single time that happens, that's going to light a fire under people. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I do think that this is going to be a motivating force for voters, um, especially at, in a midterm election, which is already kind of like low intensity. Um, so, you know, I, I think there will be ramifications down the line. Yeah, I mean, the the one saving grace I think Democrats have heading into election, despite Biden's approval ratings, despite losing on the generic ballot at the moment, despite inflation and consumer confidence being terrible, is Republicans are just embracing the culture war stuff in a way that could trigger swing voters and motivate them to vote for Democrat because the choice is eh, someone who's like maybe a little boring. The economy's not great, but like, oh my God, if I live in suburban Philadelphia and I'm one of the women that Julia, you were just talking about, like, and the choices between John Fetterman <laughs> and Dr. Oz who wants to ban abortion. Um, and and that's, that includes the governor's race too there. I mean, like, I, 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 you know, I think that is what a lot of Democrats are pointing to, which is the old political saw, like they're trying to make this race a choice and not a referendum. And all of this today, any laws that get passed in states moving forward, that's more ammo for people to say, for Democrats to say that this is a choice. I mean, I think that it's not that they're leaning into the culture wars. I think they've created the culture wars precisely for this reason. I think a lot of it is just cooked up and, um, you know, and it reminds me a lot of the 2004 election where um, we were, you know, Iraq was already a shit show. It was all already going sideways. It was already clearly a mistake. Uh, American coffins were coming home. Um, you know, things weren't great. And so Republicans were like, hey, let's make this election about gay marriage and how gay people are going to, if they're allowed to get married, they're going to destroy your marriage. And they won. You know, it, it's like, it's a really, it's a really easy way to distract people from real issues is to say like, okay, sure. Like we have unprecedented job growth and uh, the pandemic seems to be in abeyance, at least for now, but Hey, you don't want your kid getting raped in the bathroom by a, you know, by a transgender woman. Right. I think it's done on purpose. Yeah. Tara, do you want to have the last word? Last thoughts. I think Julia's right. These are really um, visceral. These topics are easy to understand. You're talking about people's children. You're talking about religion, you know, visceral culture war issues. They're just a distraction in a lot of ways, but they work. I just, you know, I just saw a tweet um, from Maggie Haberman where Trump was telling Republicans that he was worried that uh, that this ruling might not be good for Republicans in the midterms, that it could be demotivating um, and it might not help them with swing voters is it was his reasoning um, in places like, you know, Pennsylvania, Ohio, et cetera. So it could end up backfiring on Republicans, especially if it seems that there's chaos and the chaos is affecting women. A lot of those swing voters happen to be women. So, you know, we'll see. And this could ultimately end up motivating a a charged up Democratic base, it could end up flipping either way. So we'll see. We'll have to see what happens. But I think if you see horror stories about women, you know, facing health issues, if it becomes like a public health crisis, I think people might blame the Republicans for that. 
Okay, thank you guys so much for getting on the horn at the last second here. Um, I think this is only the second emergency pod we've done, but um, I like the uh, ensemble cast. Let's do it more. Uh, everyone get back to work. Tomorrow will be worse. I told you so. <laughs> Tomorrow will be worse. <laughs> I fucking told you so. <laughs> Julia is always right. <laughs> Bye, guys. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear on this podcast, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. You can visit us at puck.news and on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you next week. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13.